Chapter Twenty Two of Ravensdene Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Red Dawn. I heard steps, soft as snowflakes, go along the deck above me. For an instant, they paused by the open door at the head of my stairway. Then they went on again, and all was silent as before. But in that silence, above the gentle lapping of the water against the side of the yawl, I heard the furious thumping of my own heart, and I did not wonder at it, nor was I then, nor am I now ashamed of the fear that made it thump. Clearly, whatever else it might mean, if Baxter and the Frenchman were, as I surely believed them to be, soundly drugged, Miss Raven and I were at the positive mercy of a pack of Chinese adventurers who would probably stick at nothing. But my problem, one sufficient to rack every fibre of my brain, was, what were they after? The Chinese gentleman in the flamboyant pyjamas had without doubt repaired to his compatriots in the galley, forward. At that moment they were, of course, holding some unholy conference. Were they going to murder Baxter and the Frenchman for the sake of the swag now safely on board? It was possible. I had heard many a tale far less so. No doubt the supreme spirit was a man of subtlety and craft. So, too, most likely was our friend Lo Chu Fun. The other two would not be wanting. And if, of these other two, Wing, as Miss Raven had confidently surmised, and as I thought it possible, was one, then, indeed, there would be brains enough and to spare for the carrying out of any adventure. It seemed to me, as I lay there, quaking and sweating in sheer fright, I, a defenceless, quiet, peace-loving gentleman of bookish tastes, who scarcely knew one end of a revolver from the other, that what was likely was that the Chinese were going to round on their English and French associates, collar the loot for themselves, and sail the yawl, heaven alone knew where. But in that case, what was going to become of me and my helpless companion? It was not likely that these Easterns would treat us with the consideration which we had received from the queer, eccentric, somewhat muddle-headed Netherfield Baxter, who, it struck me with odd inconsequence at that inopportune moment, was certainly a combination of Dick Turpin, Gilles Blas, and Don Quixote. I suppose it was nearly an hour that passed. It may have been more, it may have been less. What I know is that it gave me some idea of what an accused man may feel, who, waiting in a cell below, wonders what the foreman of a jury is going to say when he is called upstairs once more to the dock which he has vacated, pending that jury's deliberations. Once or twice I thought of daring everything, rousing Miss Raven, and attempting an escape by means of the boat which no doubt lay at the side of the yawl. But reflection suggested that so desperate a deed would only mean getting a bullet through me, and perhaps through her as well. Then I speculated on my chances of making a sinuous way along the deck on my hands and knees, or on my stomach, snake-fashion, with the idea of listening at the hatch of the galley. Reflection again warned me that such an adventure would as likely as not end up with a few inches of cold steel in my side or through my gullet. So there I lay, sweating with fear, rapidly disintegrating as to nerve power, becoming a lump of moral rag and bone, 
and suddenly, unheralded by the slightest sound, I saw the figure of a man on my stairway, his outline silhouetted against the sky and the stars. It was not because of any bravery on my part, I'm sure of that, but through sheer fright that before I had the least idea of what I was doing, I had thrown myself clear of rugs and pillows, sprung to my feet, made one frenzied leap across the bit of intervening space, and clutched my intruder by his arms before his softly padded feet touched the floor of the cabin. My own breath was coming in gasps, but the response to my frenzy was quiet and cool as an autumnal afternoon. Can you row a boat? I shall never forget the mental douche, which dashed itself over me in that clear yet scarcely perceptible whisper, accompanied as it was by a ghost-like laugh of sheer amusement. I released my grip, staring in the starlight at my visitor. Lo Chu Fun. Yes, I answered, steadying my voice and keeping it down to as low tones as his own. Yes, I can. He pointed to the door behind which lay Miss Raven. "'Wake Missy as quietly as possible,' he whispered. "'Tell her get ready. Come on deck. Make no noise. All ready for you. Then you go ashore and away. See? Not good for you to be here longer.' "'No danger to her?' I asked him. "'No danger to anybody. You do as I say,' he answered. "'All ready for you. Nothing to do but come on deck forward.' get into the boat be off now without another word he glided up the stairway and disappeared for a few seconds i stood irresolute was it a trick a plant should we be safe on deck or targets for chinese bullets or receptacles for chinese knives maybe yet i suddenly made up my mind it was but one step to the door of the little inner cabin i scraped on its panels it opened instantly, a crack. Yes, whispered Miss Raven. I remembered then that if need arose, she was to do unquestioningly anything I told her to do. Dress at once and come out, I said. Be quick. I've never undressed, she answered. I lay down in my clothes. Then come just now, I commanded. Wait for nothing. She was out of the room at once, and by my side in the gloom. I laid a hand on her arm, giving its plumped softness a reassuring pressure. "'Don't be afraid,' I whispered. "'Follow me on deck. We're going.' "'Going?' she said. "'Leaving?' "'Come along,' said I. I went before her up the stairway and out on the open deck. The night was particularly clear, the stars very bright. The patch of water between the yawl and the shore lay before us, calm and dark. We could see the woods above the cove quite plainly, and at the edge of them a ribbon of white, the silver-sanded beach. And also, at the forward part of the vessel we were leaving, I saw, or fancied I saw, shadowy forms. The Chinese were going to see us off. But one form was not shadowy, nor problematical. Chu was there, awaiting us, his arms filled with rugs. Without a word he motioned us to follow, preceded us along the side of the yawl to the boat, went before us into it, helped us down, settled us, put the oars into my hands, climbed out again, and leaned his yellow face down at me. "'You pull straight ahead,' he murmured. "'Good landing place straight before you. Dry place on beach, too. Morning come soon. 
You get away, then, through woods. The boat? I asked him. You leave boat there, anywhere, he answered. Boat not wanted again. We go, soon as high water over bar. Hope you get young Missy safe home. Bless you, I said under my breath. Then, remembering that I had some money in my pocket, three or four loose sovereigns, as luck would have it, I thrust a hand therein, pulled them out, forced them into the man's claw-like fingers. I heard him chuckle softly, then his head disappeared behind the rail of the yawl, and I shoved the boat off, and for the next few minutes bent to those oars, as I had certainly never bent to any previous labour, mental or physical, in my life. And Miss Raven, seeing my earnestness, said nothing, but quietly took the tiller, and steered us in a straight line for the spot which the Chinaman had indicated. Neither of us, strange as it may seem, spoke one single word, until, at the end of half an hour's steady pull, the boat's nose ran onto the shingly beach, beneath a fringe of dwarf oak that came right down to the edge of the shore. I sprang out with a feeling of thankfulness that it would be hard to describe, and for a good reason found my tongue once more. "'Great Scott!' I exclaimed. "'I've left my boots in that cabin!' Despite the strange situation in which we were still placed, Miss Raven's sense of humour asserted itself. She laughed. "'Your boots,' she said. "'Whatever will you do? "'These stones and the long walk home.' "'There are things to be thought of before that,' said I. "'We're still in the middle of the night. "'But this boat, do you think you can help me to drag it up the beach?' Between us, the boat being a light one, we managed to pull it across the pebbles and under the low cliff, beneath the overhanging fringe of the wood. In the uncertain light, for there was no moon, and since our setting out from the yawl, masses of cloud had come up from the southeast to obscure the stars, the wood looked impenetrably black. "'We shall have to wait here until the dawn comes,' I remarked. "'We can't find our way through the wood in this darkness.' I can't even recollect the path, if there was one, by which they brought us down here from the ruins. You had better sit in the boat and make yourself comfortable with those rugs. Considerate of them, at any rate, to provide us with those. She got into the boat again, and I wrapped one rug round her knees and placed another about her shoulders. And you? she asked. I must do a bit of amateur boot-making, I answered. I'm going to cut this third rug into strips and bind them about my feet. Can't walk over stones and thorns and thistles, to say nothing of the moorland track without some protection. I got out my pocket-knife, and sitting on the side of the boat began my task. For a few minutes she watched me in silence. "'What does all this mean?' she said at last suddenly. "'Why have they let us go?' "'No idea,' I answered. But things have happened since Baxter said good-night to us. Listen, and I went on to tell her of all that had taken place on the yawl since the return of the Frenchman and his Chinese companion. What does it look like? I concluded. Doesn't it seem as if the Chinese intend foul play to those two? Do you mean that they intend to... to murder them? She asked in a half-frightened whisper. Surely not that. I don't see that a man who has lived the life that Baxter has can expect anything but a violent end, I replied callously. Yes, I suppose that's what they do mean. 
I think the Chinese mean to get rid of the two others and get away with the swag. Cleverly enough, no doubt. Horrible, she murmured. Inevitable, said I. To my mind, the whole atmosphere was one of that sort of thing. We're most uncommonly lucky. She became silent again and remained so for some time, while I went on at my task, binding the strips of rug about my feet and ankles and fastening them, putty fashion, around my legs. I don't understand it, she exclaimed after several minutes had gone by. Surely those men must know that we, once free of them, would be sure to give the alarm. We aren't under any promise to them, whatever we were to Baxter. I don't understand anything, I said. All I know is the surface of the situation. But that gentle villain who saw us off the yawl said that they were sailing at high water, only waiting until the tide was deep on the bar outside there. And they could get a long way, north or south or east, before we could set anybody on to them. Supposing they did get rid of Baxter and his Frenchman, what's to prevent them making off across the North Sea to, say, some port in the north of Russia? They've got stuff on board that would be saleable anywhere. No doubt they'll have it all melted into shapeless lumps before many hours are out. Once more she was silent, and when she spoke again it was in a note of decision. No, I don't think that's it at all, she said emphatically. They're dependent on wind and weather, and the seas aren't so wide, but that they'd be caught on our information. I'm sure that isn't it. What is it, then? I asked. I've a sort of vague, misty idea, she answered, with a laugh that was plainly intended to be deprecatory of her own power. Supposing these Chinese, you say they're awfully keen and astute, Suppose they've got a plot amongst themselves for handing Baxter and the Frenchman over to the police, the authorities, with their plunder. Do you see it? I had just finished the manufacture of my novel footwear, and I jumped to my padded feet with an exclamation that this time did not come from unpleasant contact with the sharp stones. By George, I said, there is an idea in that. There may be something in it. We thought Wing was on board, she continued. If so, I think I may be right in offering such a suggestion. Supposing that Wing came across these people when he went to London, took service with them in the hope of getting at their secret. Suppose he's induced the other Chinese to secure Baxter and the Frenchman, that in short he's been playing the part of detective? Wouldn't that explain why they sent us away? Partly, yes, perhaps wholly, I said, struggling with this new idea. But where and when and how do they intend, if your theory's correct, to do the handing over? That's surely easy enough, she replied quickly. There's nothing to do but sail the yawl into, say, Berwick Harbour, and call the police aboard. A very, very easy matter. I wonder if it is so, I answered musingly. It might be, but if we stay here until it's light and the tide's up, we shall see which way the yawl goes. It's high water between five and six o'clock, she remarked. Anyway, it was between four and five yesterday morning at Ravensdean Court, which now seems to be far away in some other world. Hungry? I asked. Not a bit, she answered. But it's a long way since yesterday afternoon. We've seen things. 
"'We've certainly seen Mr. Netherfield Baxter,' I observed. "'A fascinating man,' she said with a laugh. "'The sort of man, under other circumstances, one would like to have to dinner.' "'Hm,' said I. "'A ready and plausible tongue, to be sure. "'I dare say there are women who would fall in love with such a man.' "'Lots,' she answered with ready assent. "'As I said just now, he's a very fascinating person.' "'Ah,' said I teasingly, I had a suspicion last night that he was exciting your sympathetic interest. I'm much more sympathetic about your lack of boots and shoes, she retorted. But as you seem to have rigged up some sort of satisfactory substitute, don't you think we might be making our way homewards? Is there any need to go through the woods? Why should we not follow the coast? I'm doubtful about our ability to get round the south point of this cove, I answered. I was looking at it yesterday afternoon from the deck of the yawl, and I saw that just there a sort of wall of rock runs right out into the sea, and if the tide's coming in... That the woods, she interrupted, surely we can make our way through them somehow, and it will begin to get light in another hour or two. But it's darker in there than you think for, and rougher going too. However... Just then, and before she had made up her mind, we were both switched off that line of action by something that broke out on another. Across the three-quarters of a mile of water which separated us from our recent prison came the sound, clear and unmistakable, of a revolver shot, followed almost instantly by another. Miss Raven, who had risen to her feet, suddenly sat down again. A third shot rang out, a fourth, a fifth. We saw the flashes of each, they came without doubt from the deck of the yawl. Firing, she murmured. Fighting, said I. That's just, listen to that. Half a dozen reports, sharp, insistent, rang out in quick succession, then two or three, all mingling together, the echoes followed from wood and cliff. Rapidly, as the flashes pierced the gloom, the sounds died out, a heavy silence followed. "'That's just what?' asked Miss Raven calmly. "'Well, if not just what I expected, it's at any rate partly what I expected,' I said. "'It had already struck me that if—well, supposing whatever it was that the Chinaman dropped into those glasses didn't act quite as soporifically as he intended to, and Baxter and his companion woke up and found there was a conspiracy, a mutiny going on, there'd be a—' fighting she suggested you're not a squeamish girl i answered there'd be bloody murder their lives or the others and i should say that death stalking through that unholy craft just now she made no answer and we stood staring at the black bulk lying motionless on the grey water stood for a time listening i to tell the truth was straining my ears to catch the plash of oars I thought it possible that some of those on board the yawl might take a violent desire to get ashore. But the silence continued, and now we said no more of setting out on our homeward journey. Curiosity as to what had happened kept us there whispering. The time passed. Almost before we realized that night was passing, we were suddenly aware of a long line of faint yellow light that rose above the far horizon. Dawn, I muttered, dawn. And then at that moment we both heard something. Somewhere outside the bar, but close to the shore, 
a steam-propelled vessel was tearing along at a breakneck speed. End of chapter 22